So Acts chapter 25, we'll have that up on the screen if you'd like to read along with us. And we are going to read down to uh, verse 12 together this morning. So Acts chapter 25, God's word reads as follows. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, saying, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, Answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men Accuse me, no one, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the, the freedom to read the scriptures publicly without fear. And Lord, as we share your word, which certainly is, goes beyond free speech in this country, uh, to proclaiming the truth, to speaking what is true. Lord, may your spirit rest upon your word as we hear it, as it hits our ears and enters and penetrates our hearts. And Lord, as always, you have the magnificent way of taking something that you want to speak to us as a church and, and to those who are gathered here and to those who will be listening later. But you also take it and you apply it severally and individually to our lives. And you bring a word often, Lord, I hear it so often from people that they think I was uh, reading their diary or something. But Lord, it's you, it's your spirit. And we pray you would do that very same thing this morning, that you would speak to hearts and to lives, that you would minister truth, that you would bring, bring hope and encouragement, and if possible, Lord, if necessary, even conviction but that we might respond to the spirit of truth and turn and return and do those things that are proper, proper and appropriate and upright. We thank you, Lord, as we open our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the book of Acts for so many reasons. One of those reasons is I heard, and I've mentioned this before probably, but I heard many years ago when I was studying in a bit more of a formal environment, uh, 
Uh, I didn't go to Bible college or seminary, but I took some classes. And one of the, the teachers had said that when it comes to the book of Acts, we don't really, it's, it's just more of a narrative. It's the history book of the New Testament. But, you know, as I sat and read it after hearing that, um, you know, as a young believer, I was so amazed at what the book of Acts contains, the truth, the stories, the application of the truth to our lives. And uh, I, I love being able to read it as well as to teach it, and in a sense, to prove those people wrong. That the book of Acts is here for our encouragement, for our edification, for our enjoyment today as much as any other part of Scripture. And uh, no doubt as we are in this section of Scripture, section 24, 25, and 26, we are kind of reading and regurgitating, in a sense, Paul's appeal to these people before whom he's given the opportunity to testify. So we shouldn't look at this as just, oh, here, here goes Paul again giving his testimony before some king or some magistrate. Because every time he gives it a little bit differently, tailoring it a bit to their own heart, to their own situation. Last week we saw that as he spoke to um, Felix that, you know, when he spoke to him about righteousness and judgment, that that was what no doubt the Spirit needed to speak to his heart and to probably to those in the room. And keep in mind that God knows those who are listening and he knows what they need to hear. And so he allows those words to come forth. And just as when the Lord spoke to the disciples back in the upper room, and he says, don't worry uh, when you get out and when I send you out after the day of Pentecost and you come before people and and you have an opportunity to speak, don't worry about what you're going to speak for. In that moment, in that hour, I will give you the words. I will put them in your hearts. I will give them to you in your mouth that you might speak the truth as it needs to be spoken in that moment. And what a glorious thing, because that's the way it is with God's word. And that's the way it is here today in this story that we have with Paul. Um, As I was reading this again, I came up with two titles. The title I put up uh, on the sermon is called Waiting. But I also could have called it Paul the Patient Prisoner. And I think there's a, a bit of a theme here, at least in my mind, at least that's what I heard as I was reading this, sort of the undertone was that issue of waiting and being patient when things are not happening at the pace we want them to or in the way that we want them to. Just to go back a little bit for context, if you'll look back up to chapter 24, verse 23, just to get a little context, it said, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or to visit him. So although Paul was in prison, he was under custody of the Roman guards, he was given great liberty. And it says in verse 24, And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go your way, go away for now for, and uh, excuse me, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And as we looked at that last week, Felix's fear no doubt was driven by being confronted with the truth of God's word. And it's interesting that when people become fearful Uh, especially when the truth of God's word has spoken to their hearts and convicted them, 
often there's a response in at least a couple of different ways. One of those is fear. Fear because he knew what was being spoken was true. But often, of course, fear can parlay itself into anger. And sometimes anger, when we see someone responding in an angry way, sometimes they're, they're actually responding out of fear. Uh, not so much anger, but just the fear of what's happening in their lives or what's being spoken to them in terms of truth. And notice here in verse 25 of chapter 24, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. This idea of just putting it off, saying, you know what, I don't want to deal with this right now. And so often we do that, don't we, when we come up against the truth, when we come up against something that we know we need to address. Now, sometimes this is a health issue, right? And we have these things happen to us, especially as we get older, and we have to address these issues. And if we don't, you know, later on from neglect, there will be, uh, you know, a sowing and a reaping. And so it is with the truth of God's word, more importantly. And in this case, Felix put it off and he says, when I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. Here's the deal. That more convenient time almost never comes. Because we put it off and we're like, yeah, I don't really want to deal with that right now. But here's the thing, and I'm I'm saying this to you today, however you want to hear this in your own heart, but if there's something that you've been putting off, whether it be a spiritual matter or even perhaps a physical matter, I believe God is speaking and saying that we need to deal with those things. Don't, Don't sweep them under the rug. Don't put them away. Deal with them while we have time, while it is still called today. And then in the last couple of verses there, we saw that Felix was actually hoping that he might receive a bribe. Of course, you see the greed of a politician, of course, something we've never seen before. And after two years, in verse 27, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So remember, as Paul was going up to Jerusalem, he kept getting that word from the Holy Spirit through various people and in various situations When you get to Jerusalem, uh, chains and affliction await you. And so he got there and he he began to minister and speak the word. And he finally had that opportunity to speak to his brothers, the Jews, and to preach the gospel to them. But remember, as Paul said, the word Gentile, it set them aflame and they were going to tear him limb for limb. And isn't it interesting that if a Gentile comes and converts to Judaism or even today, If you, as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, go to Jerusalem or go to Israel, but you come as a Gentile who believes in Christ, and by the way, the the Jews often call Jesus the Gentile Messiah because they don't believe he is their Messiah, but if you go there as a believer, they will accept you. But if you were a Jew, a Messianic Jew, someone who has believed in Christ, someone that that they believe, again, is the the Gentile Messiah, then they would treat you with such disdain and they would treat you with this hatred and with this, this partiality against you for having believed in Christ. And here's Paul now in Caesarea. He's been there for two years. And no doubt as he was put in this confinement, I'm sure in his mind he didn't see it going this way. For two years, sitting there uh, in the palace in Caesarea, just waiting for something to happen, waiting for a trial to come. And he had this word in his head, right, that the Lord had spoken to him. 
And we'll come to that in a moment. But we come to verse 1. Festus, therefore, having arrived, so there's been this changing of the guard. Felix left behind this prisoner that he didn't want to deal with, and he's left him for the next guy. So Felix has arrived, and three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. We don't even know at this point if Festus had been advised about Paul, but he gets to Jerusalem. You know, he's sort of the new guy over the, this, this province. And he goes up to Jerusalem, and verse 2, the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Isn't it interesting that after two years, this has not subsided one bit. They still are pursuing Paul in every way that we can, they can with, with great hatred in their hearts for him. And remember previously, there were 40 Jewish assassins who had taken a vow against Paul and said they would neither eat nor drink uh, until they had killed him. And that's when uh, Paul's nephew found out about it and he came and he told the guard and uh, the guard took him Uh, under cover of night, and sent him down to Caesarea. So here they are again, plotting an ambush. They wanted to kill him, and this time they knew if they could get the Roman procurator to send Paul up, that this time he would come with minimal guards, and they knew that they could have enough people to overtake them. Festus then, verse 4, answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or 10 days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So again, stop and think as we put ourselves into the story, put ourselves in the place of the Apostle Paul. You are in prison because of charges that can't be proven because your brethren, your countrymen have come to hate you in such a way that they want you dead. And if they could have had their way, they would have killed you already, probably with great violence, torturing him, making him suffer. And so here they are, and this is what struck me, as they gathered around him in verse 7. How crazy that would be to have people gathered around you and there's this ominous sort of people attacking you and speaking harsh and crazy things against you. And so as they stood around him, bringing many serious, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove, and that's the key thing, they really had no evidence this was just them levying charges against him, which had, you know, no testimony, no witness, no evidence against him. Verse 8, while Paul said in his own defense, so he stood once again to speak on his behalf, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges there? Now, given that Paul was a Jew, of course, he was also a Roman citizen. Festus was looking at this saying, well, 
it would be only proper and rational since this is a Jewish matter, this is a Jewish religious matter, in fact, that we take him up to Jerusalem and let him stand trial there. You know, really, I don't have any, any skin in this game. There's no reason I need to do something. He's done nothing against Rome. He's appealing because he's a Roman citizen, but the charges are Jewish in nature. And so he spoke that um, to Paul and said, why don't we go up to Jerusalem? But Paul said in verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. So he's just calling Festus right out on the carpet. And that's pretty bold. Festus is sitting on the judgment seat. And he's saying, you very well know that I have done nothing wrong. There is nothing chargeable against me. There is no evidence at all. And he says in verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer and I've committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. In other words, if there's something really against me, if I've, if I've committed a, you know, a crime in such a way that's worthy of death, then I don't refuse to die. I'll, I'll submit myself to the judgment. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So now the Lord had spoken to Paul many times. Paul knew the voice of the Lord. Would you turn with me back to Acts chapter 9? And let's just look at this briefly. And in Acts chapter 9, after Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus, after the Lord had spoken to him and knocked him down on the ground, some believe Paul may have been riding on a horse, whatever it was, he was there, the Lord confronted him, and he sent him into uh, Damascus to the street called Straight, and there he was waiting while the Lord prepared the heart of Ananias to come and to, to bring healing and to bring a word to him. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord spoke to Ananias, and these are the words that Ananias spoke to Paul. So they're, they're in red if you have a red letter edition. So verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias, of course, went and he delivered this message to Paul. And of course, this was something that was deep in his heart. This was a part of his conversion experience. The Lord had spoken to him. And let me just say this about that because I think this is important. When you hear God's voice speaking to you, whether it's in your heart or through his word, most likely, when you hear it and you begin to understand and, and hear that voice, it becomes like what the Lord spoke in John chapter 10 and John chapter 15, abiding in Christ, uh, being in the vine, listening for the voice of the Father in John chapter 10. The, the chapter of the great shepherd, which is Jesus himself, he said there, my sheep hear my voice. So Paul, for the first time, hears Jesus's voice all the way back there in Acts chapter nine. And then the Lord, of course, spoke to him a number of times along the way over the years as Paul was ministering. Remember in Acts chapter 13, he was called into ministry. And then a little bit later, as Paul was, was going along on his second and his third journey, the Lord was speaking to him in Acts chapter 18. Remember, Paul was in Corinth, verse 9 of chapter 18. 
Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So in that situation, the Lord spoke to him. And as the Lord spoke to him, he brought sort of a calming influence to Paul's life. I know what I missed here because it's not in red. And in chapter 16, another instance where the Lord spoke to him, Remember there, they were trying to determine where they should go to minister in Acts chapter 16. And down at verse uh, 6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So certainly the Lord had spoken to them there in some way and directed their path. Verse 7, And they had come to Mysia. Uh, They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Notice in verse 10, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Listen, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul, hearing the voice of the Lord continually and over a period of time, over a period of many years. And then a little bit later, the Lord spoke to Paul again. And the reason for reviewing this is so that we might understand that as the Lord spoke to Paul, uh, certainly Paul had this in his heart. In chapter 22, down in verse 17, Paul's telling his story, and he tells of another sort of detail uh, that came to him. Verse 17, then it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him, no doubt Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So again, the Lord speaking to him. And then verse 21, then he said to me, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Then in chapter 23 in verse 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So Paul had this history with the Lord, didn't he? Where he heard the Lord speaking to him. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. Some would say this is not a normative experience for a believer today. But I believe that it is. I believe that it should be. How do we hear the voice of God? Primarily through his word. But certainly the Lord can speak to us. And I believe whenever the Lord speaks to us, it will always be in accordance with his word. And just as the Lord gave them direction as in Acts chapter 16, about which direction they should go. Turn left, turn right. Go do this, go do that. I believe the Lord also wants to, even today, present those things to us. He wants to direct our paths. We're going to look at some things in, in a little bit later from the Old Testament that tell us that God wants us to wait and to seek Him. And so we need to hear His voice. And we need to have those experiences. Certainly we can't manifest those experiences on our own, but we can seek the Lord. Uh, This past week I was at a pastor's fellowship on Tuesday, took a day off, 
And as I was gathered there with some of my fellow comrades from around New England, one of the pastors was sharing that, you know, what's been on his heart lately for his church has, has been, he sees fruit and he sees growth and that kind of a thing. But he says, one thing I see missing is people really kind of having that individual alone time where they are actually seeking God alone and on their own. And that's where you hear the voice of God. That's where you get direction for your life. So why did Paul appeal to Caesar? Because Caesar was in Rome. And didn't the Lord say, Paul, you're going to Rome? Now, I don't believe Paul was trying to manipulate the circumstances. I think he knew, as he had heard from the Lord, Paul, don't worry, I'm going to get you to Rome. And so Paul appealed to Caesar. He's like, hey, let's just throw it out there. Let's by faith see what happens. Hey, I'm appealing to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. Let's see what happens. And of course, they were uh, inclined to do so because Paul was a Roman citizen. So God was allowing this to happen. And when Festus conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now Paul's already spent two years. He's already been waiting for two years. Lord, what do you have for me? How will, how will this happen? And you know what happens whenever we become impatient, believing that God has given us a, a vision or uh, you know, spoken to our heart in some way, we become impatient. Think of, think of Abraham. Remember when the Lord had promised to him that he would become the father of many nations. And remember Abraham and Sarah as they were going through life, waiting for the promise of God, and God spoke and clearly gave them that promise, and they heard the voice of God, they knew it. But they became impatient, and what did they do? They tried in the flesh to influence the Lord. They tried to speed up the Lord's timetable. And twice he tried to pass his wife off as his sister and so that you know, she wouldn't get killed or he wouldn't get killed so that they would take her because she was a beautiful person. And of course, then later, of course, they tried to use a surrogate. And of course, then he had Ishmael, which was a New Testament tells us was a picture of the flesh. And so we have to be careful when we're waiting because when God speaks, sometimes he'll give a timeline. In Acts 16, that timeline seemed to be very short over a period of days or a week or even two weeks. But in the case of Abraham, how long was it? 10 years, 20 years before God began to provide evidence that he was keeping his promise and that he was fulfilling what he had spoken? What about Moses? Early on, God had spoken to Moses in his life when he was, you know, around 40, saying, you know, you're going to be the deliverer. But you remember what Moses did as he came out that day and he saw uh, an Egyptian harshly mistreating one of his brothers. What did he do? He killed him by his own hand. And then, of course, he became a wanted man. And the next day, he saw two of his own countrymen fighting and striving. And he came and he said to them, brothers, you shouldn't treat each other this way. And they said, what? Who made you a master over us? Are you going to do to us what you did to the Egyptian? And what happened at that point? Moses had to be exiled to the desert for how long? 40 years. 
And for 40 years, Moses was waiting for God to fulfill his word. And the point is this, we have to wait, we have to be patient for what God wants to do. God had revealed a plan to Paul, you shall go to Rome and witness to me there. But there's the interval of time, and we have to be patient and wait for the Lord to realize his plan in his time and in his way and in his purposes. You see, sometimes God is moving things around on a chessboard. You know, God doesn't play checkers, he plays chess. And he organizes things and he puts them out there the way he wants to. And we have to be patient waiting for it to happen. Now, when several days had elapsed, verse 13, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left uh, a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation upon him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And so after they had assembled here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man named Jesus, whom Paul asserts to be alive. You know, I was thinking about this, having read through it, and, you know, Paul, when he made his defense, as we've already been looking at, he talked about the resurrection, he talked about Jesus, he talked about the hope to come. And I was thinking about this in, in light of what do we tell people today? What do we understand the gospel to be? You see, when Paul made his defense, he told people about Jesus. He said, Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus came to redeem us from our sins. He is sent from God. And if you believe in him, you will receive everlasting life. Your sins can and will be forgiven by believing in the name of Jesus. And so Paul had no trouble mentioning Jesus and saying, you know what, he was killed. You know, I, go read 1 Corinthians 15. He, he was harshly mistreated. He was beaten. He was killed. He was left for dead. And three days later, he rose from the dead. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. And now we have hope in the resurrection because our, our captain, our savior, Jesus, was resurrected from the dead. And what would it look like today if we simply presented these things to people? You know, sometimes I think we try to couch things in such a way so that we're not offensive to people. But you know what? The gospel is salvation. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. We shouldn't be trying to make it either offensive or not offensive. We should just simply speak it and preach it to people. Let the chips fall where they may. You see, our job, according to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, is to sow the seed. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the truth. And, and if you think about the sower casting that seed out, 
It's not my job to try and discern what kind of the, of the four soils might that seed be falling upon. That's God's job. My job is just to sow the seed, to preach the gospel, to lift up the name of Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. And if it falls on good soil, God will do something with it. And maybe it's going to fall on soil and maybe it's going to need to be cultivated and watered and nurtured over time. But you see, God will do that. But we need to be faithful to do our part, which is simply to speak the word. I find it interesting that as Paul was here now for these two years at this point, waiting on the Lord, waiting on a trial, Paul could have easily in his own mind and heart, and certainly this happens with us, just kind of go to the place where he says, Lord, you left me here. What's going on? Why isn't anything happening? But I believe Paul saw himself not in, in the light of his own humanity or kind of getting upset, saying, God, why are you making, making me wait? And, you know, turning it inward and turning it on himself and becoming self-centered. In fact, I think the scriptures give us evidence uh, that as Paul in particular wrote to some of his comrades later as he wrote the prison epistles, here's what he had to say about understanding his situation. And of course, he wrote these later from Rome, but he said, Ephesians 3.1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of the Jews. Paul said, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he knew God had put him in that position. God had put him in that place. Ephesians 4.1, again, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Later in Philemon verse 9, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul saw himself as being where he was because God had put him there. He was the prisoner of the Lord. And so there was this disagreement and as they were conversing, uh, Felix and Agrippa, It came back to the resurrection again. It came back to this person, Jesus. Verse 20, And being at a loss on how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem. In other words, I've never had a case where a Jew was a Roman citizen and the charges against him are Jewish, but he as a Roman citizen is exercising his rights and I'm between a rock and a hard place and I don't know what to do. There's no formal charges under the Roman government against this man, but there's these religious charges and we don't have any jurisdiction and we really don't want to do anything about this. This is not our responsibility. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, I'd also like to hear the man myself. And he said, tomorrow you shall hear him. And so on the next day when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp and had entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders uh, uh, and prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So 
on this day, unlike the other times Paul had come before a, a Roman judge, this pomp and circumstance indicates that King Agrippa came in wearing his royal robe and there was you know, probably a scepter and all these things involved. So this was not just a couple of guys saying, all right, bring the man in. I'm going to sit on this seat, which is the judgment seat, and bring him before me. No, this time it's very formal. So Paul now is being given the opportunity, according to the word of the Lord, to be brought in before this king and to give his testimony yet again to King Agrippa this time. And in verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me. Certainly that's not every Jew in all the world, but he's obviously getting a lot of appeal from the Jewish leadership. Uh, All the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. He's worthy of death. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite to write about him to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you, uh, before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to write. In other words, I can't just send him to Caesar with a blank paper. I here's Paul. Good luck. He had to write something. It would have meant certainly disciplinary charges for him for sending a prisoner to Rome, to Caesar, in fact, to be the Supreme Court, to hear the case and have no charges. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. So this is where chapter 25 ends and next week chapter 26 picks up with what happens before King Agrippa. But I want to come back to this issue before we close today of waiting and patience. One person has said, if God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. If God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. And often when we are put in a position, as Paul was, as Abraham was, as Moses was, as Joseph was, in waiting on the Lord, waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to fulfill his word, sometimes we become impatient when patience is what is called for. Sometimes the waiting feels like laziness. Sometimes waiting feels like inaction before the Lord. Here's some scriptures, and man, there's so many, I can't share them all, but I want to give you just this little smattering here this morning to encourage you with respect if you find yourself in the place where either you're waiting for a word from the Lord on something in your life, or maybe he's already spoken and you're now waiting for it to take place, you're waiting for it to come to pass. In Genesis 8, we find that Noah, of course, had Remember, Noah had spent a hundred years building the ark. Talk about waiting. Laboring for a hundred years, God had said, there's going to be a flood, there's going to be a flood, there's going to be a flood for a hundred years. And Noah keeps building the ark patiently. And so he built the ark. Remember, the Lord shut the door, the flood came, the rain came. And now this is on the back end of that as the waters are beginning to subside. And in Genesis chapter 8, it said... uh, Noah waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. 
Remember when the dove came back, uh, he had, you know, had nothing. And then verse 12, so he waited yet another seven days. Excuse me, he might have come back with a branch on that one. I'm just sort of reading the scriptures I had pasted in here. And he waited for him yet another seven days and sent out the dove. And this time the dove didn't return. And he knew, of course, at that point that the dove had found dry land. And so, so now Noah, after waiting all that time, finally, God has not only brought the judgment, but God is now fulfilling his plan. In Psalm 25, one of my favorite Psalms, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. On you, I wait all the day. What is the idea there? Waiting on the Lord is waiting just to hear from the Lord on anything, on any topic, on any subject. Longing to hear the voice of God in our lives. Later on in Psalm 25, verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And the idea here as we read some of these is wanting to hear from God before I act. Wanting to hear from God before I make a decision. Now surely all of us here have made decisions that didn't turn out so well. And probably some of those decisions didn't turn out well because we didn't wait upon the Lord. Psalm 27, another one of my favorite ones. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 37, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Remember later in Psalm 78, there was Asaph who had written and said, Lord, I'm discouraged because I'm seeing the wicked prosper. It seems like they can do whatever they want and they get away with it. But Lord, the righteous, the righteous are suffering. And then you know what it said there? It says, then I understood when I went into the sanctuary. When I came before God, when there was silence, when I could hear his voice, then I understood. I understood there's an end for them. There's a point where they will stand before the judge. Maybe it's not right now. But the day of judgment, the day of justice is coming for them. And now, Lord, Psalm 39, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. You see, even if we don't know perhaps what we're waiting for, or we don't have a timeline, we just go into the presence of the Lord and we wait on him and we wait for him to speak. It's so important. Psalm 40. If you read the beginning verses of Psalm 40, it talks, the psalmist talks about being in a pit, being in miry clay. It's like the idea is like he fell down a shaft and he's in deep, thick, miry mud and he can't get out. There's no rope. There's nobody to help him. And here's what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard, to my, heard my cry. And if you read that psalm, it says, finally, God delivered him and God set his feet on a rock. But that was in God's time. And we can't pull ourselves out of the mud. We can't pull ourselves out of the storm until the Lord's purpose in that storm or in that time of waiting is accomplished in our lives. I'm sure Moses was tired after, you know, he's, he's in his 70s now waiting on the Lord out shepherding sheep. And finally, when he was 80, God spoke to him and said, okay, Moses, it's time to go. 
It's time for the promise to be fulfilled. You will now become the deliverer of my people. Imagine being called into ministry at 80. And we could, we could go on, Psalm 62. Truly my soul silently waits for God, for, for from him comes my salvation. Proverbs chapter 20. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, he will save you. Let the Lord be your deliverer. Isaiah chapter 26. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. In other words, don't worry about that stuff. Don't look at the stuff that's happening around you. Don't, don't look at the injustices and say, how long, O Lord? But instead, just look to the Lord. Let the desire of your soul, as it said in Isaiah 26, verse 8, be for him, for his name. In Hosea chapter 12, so you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Just do right, do righteousness, and press in, look to the Lord. Micah chapter 7, therefore I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, God will hear us. Don't give up hope. In Romans chapter 12, he talked about uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. What do we do when we don't know what to do? We rejoice in hope. We have been given hope. We know what that hope is. We just have to wait for the, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That hope is coming. But it will come when God is ready to bring it. Second Thessalonians 3, I'm skipping a lot of these. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and listen into the patience of Christ. Paul saying there to the Thessalonian people, that he wants the Lord to direct their hearts into the patience of Christ. Boy, that has has deep meaning. Jesus suffered as one who deserved nothing. He, He deserved none of the suffering. And he had to wait. He had to wait for his God to bring him through it, to walk with him through it. He had to wait for his God to resurrect him, which he knew he would. The patience of Christ... Hebrews 6, I love this one. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. You see, we become so short-sighted, don't we? I'm in this thing. I've got pain. I just want it to be over so I can move on with my life. When we get into something that's unpleasant, where we're suffering, where there's tribulation, whatever it may be, usually what we do is orient our lives around getting back to equilibrium. Instead, let's not miss what the Lord may want to show us and teach us in that time, in the storm, in the tribulation. Let God speak. Let him show us what he needs to show us. 
Continuing on in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, he says, So that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, directing their lives, directing their eyes back to the people of faith, the fathers of the faith. He goes on, this is Hebrews six thirteen. the next verse, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely... Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, listen to verse 15. This covers like 25 years. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Everyone's favorite verse is James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God wants to, in the trial, teach us patience, teach us to wait. You know, I'm convinced sometimes that the reason trials last as long as they do is because the first half of the trial, the first three quarters of the trial, we spend complaining. And God says, well, when you stop complaining long enough to listen to me, I'll speak. I believe he actually does that. That was James 1. James 5, a little bit later, listen to the perspective he now gives, James 5, 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, when? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you realize what happens when we have to go through times of waiting and patience? It's not just the thing that we're in. It's not just the character flaws and those kinds of things. But it's God training us and teaching us to wait for that day when we see Jesus. We have to learn to wait. We have to learn to be patient. For God to bring about his purposes in his time and in his way. And then in that same passage in James 5, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. In other words, look back to them. And isn't that what Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith is all about? Looking back at those people who have gone before, people who were imperfect, people who failed, people who blew it, blew it, Samson? I mean, come on, Lord. But he had faith. Look to those people, learn from their mistakes, learn from their good things. Let's close with this, probably a verse everyone has underlined in their Bible. If you don't, you need to do it right now. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, Paul had to wait. He didn't know how long it was going to be. He, all the word he had was, I'm going to get you to Rome. God didn't say, by June 27th. He just said, we're going to Rome, Paul. What did Jesus say when the disciples got into the boat? We're going to the other side. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be a, a hellacious storm on the way. But just keep looking to me and trusting in me.
You know, there's, there's things, and I'll close with this, that the Lord has spoken to my heart just over time, over the years. And some of those things I've been waiting for now for a number of years, four years or more. And yet recently, the Lord has been so faithful. I, you know, these are not things, you know, these are things you, you write down and you pray on and you wait. And, you know, Lord, what do you have in mind? And uh, how long, Lord? And that kind of thing. And in, in the past, oh, five or so months, on three separate occasions, I have had three different people who know nothing of my situation and what's going on in my head and heart come to me and speak almost the identical same word from the Lord to me about this very thing. Keep waiting, it's coming soon. In terms of the thing that the Lord had been speaking to me. And you know, it's best to have what God wants you to have when he wants you to have it. And not a moment sooner. Pastor Mitch and I were talking last week about how The Lord is rarely early, but he's never late. And so Paul's having to trust in the Lord. He's an example. And certainly, I've just given you a smattering of scriptures, but the word is replete with this idea of waiting and trusting. You see, waiting implies trust. Waiting implies faith. Waiting implies understanding that Father knows best. And that I will trust in him. And when he wants to bring it about, whatever it is, he will. And when he does, it's going to be so sweet. And when God does it, he's going to do it in such a way that will blow our mind. God, how in the world could you have possibly done that? Think about the life of Joseph. He's one of my favorite people, about what God did in his life and how he did it. Or some of the people we've mentioned, Abraham, Moses, Noah. And the list goes on. You see, God is faithful. Don't let your heart or your mind tell you otherwise. Don't listen to anybody, any voice that tells you other than what we've already read and looked at here today, that be patient, wait on the Lord. Wait, I say, on the Lord, trust in Him. Be faithful, persevere, stay true, stay strong. Look to the Lord. I lift my eyes up, whence cometh my help from the... My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Trust in the Lord. In the waiting, be patient. Amen. Lord, we, we love you. We need you. Lord, no doubt things we've needed to hear here today. And no doubt a word, certainly for me, perhaps for many of us. And Lord, maybe there's things that we've been in process with you on that have not yet come to fruition. And so we know we need to continue to wait and to trust and to look and to hope. Lord, maybe there are things that have yet to be spoken. And so this is a precursor about how we should handle it, how we should deal with it. Maybe we're, we're in the middle of something, Lord, that just seems like it's dragging on. But we know that you will provide, you will meet, you will speak. And so God, until then, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author of our faith. Help us to look to you, Lord, to understand that in you all things are summed up, and one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. 
And Lord, we want to be there on that day with as many people as possible whom we are praying for, whom we love, whom we've spoken the word to. God, we want to see them. We want to see them bend the knee as opposed to being made willingly to bend the knee, which is a precursor to them for judgment. And God, we don't wish that upon anyone, even of people we might think of who are evil people. God, we pray that they would turn and that they would repent. We pray for our president. We pray for so many in politics, Lord. I mean, regardless of the party, that doesn't mean they're saved. Unless they confess the name of Jesus, it means nothing. Lord, help us in these last days to persevere, to be faithful. Help us to wait patiently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.